This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spend half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life even now as a media creator and beer professional. This is what gave birth to Mountain Sea Media, the stories that impact our lives and give meaning to our business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 53 of Good Beer Matters. I can't believe what we're tasting here is just so cool. It just had so much personality. So I, I really felt like I wanted to do something more, you know, exceptional. I mean, a lot of people are like, where's the UPC code? I'm like, we're not, you know, you think you're going to buy this in the supermarket? Like, no way, dude. This is beer in a wine glass, you know, like... Put the shaker pints away. What do you get if you cross the mindset of a winemaker and the talented hands of a brewer to create a perfect blend of single origin beers? You get a style-defying, exceptional brewery set deep in the heart of Californian wine country. The beers produced from this farm-style brewery are easy on the palate, but with enough character and nuance to be served in some of the finest restaurants in Napa. Beers like this require a mindset that puts ingredients first with a focus on the land and process. While winemakers often say it takes a lot of beer to make wine, in the case of my next guest, I'd say it takes a lot of wine to make beer like Mad Fritz. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 53 of Good Beer Matters with brewer and winemaker Niall Zacherly. Uh, podcast. Um, I have to admit, uh, I was not aware of your brewery, Mad Fritz, until relatively recently, and I had a chance to look into it and was very intrigued. And then one day, I had a chance to taste one of your beers, and it completely blew me away. And uh, so naturally, I did some a uh, little bit. Well, I did some more research and uh, saw that the way that you're doing things is completely different from what most people are doing and i really really want to know what it is you're doing and why it's better so thank you for coming on to the podcast well thank you for having me and uh happy to uh hear you had a positive experience <laughs> yeah it, it, it was it was uh exceptionally positive that uh, just saying it was a good experience was uh putting it a little too mildly um uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to, while we're talking, I'm going to try and pull up, uh, it was the Terroir Project, I believe it was. Um, yeah, I remember it was, uh, the label had a, a dragon on the front eating its own tail, uh, but it was the, uh, uh, what was the Terroir series of the Napa, um, 
Oh gosh, I'm trying to find the picture so I can tell you exactly what it was, and it yeah, is... Yeah, no, that sounds like the Napa Ale. Um, yeah. We have a Sonoma, we've been working on a Mendocino, uh, these kind of single-county ales, uh, if you will, but, um, you know, sourcing from these farmers and building these relationships, it just takes time, and and that's been, I mean, we... We've been driving towards that single origin uh, direction. God, I guess we kind of hit that in 17 or 18. 17 or 18, I think we put out our first terroir um, <clears throat> beer. Well, let, let's, uh, you know, I, I always start the same way, um, but, you know, it, it, it makes sense to start at the beginning. Um, will you give us a, just a quick introduction? And, and I especially want to hear about your background in beer and wine and, and everything. So maybe more of a background on Mad Fritz uh, as a as a kind of um, kind of our intent, why we exist, sort of thing, or more on me or uh, uh, on, on you. I, w- I want to hear about you, and then we'll talk about Mad oh. Fritz in just a moment. Oh, okay, great. Um, okay, so basically, I've been uh, making beer and wine since I was about 18 years old, when my father and I had an opportunity to taste beer together at a bar. Uh, it happened to be the North Coast Brewing Company, their original little brew pub. I think it was like 89 or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, down there in Fort Bragg, and I was living in Hawaii at the time. My, uh, my family lived in Hawaii. And uh, so I ended up going back um, home brewing with my dad, kind of father-son project. And when I left to go to college in Santa Cruz, I kept home brewing. And as an art student, I kind of eventually found myself being um, pulled towards this fermentation science and making honey, ales, beads, etc. at home. And uh, I eventually changed my degree to science, transferred to UC Davis uh, to get a degree in fermentation science. At that point, I, I ended up doing both beer and wine, going through the Master Brewers program in '96. And then I uh, finished my degree, my fermentation science degree in 97, uh, TAing uh, the, uh, the brewing classes with Dr. Lewis, um, and, uh, and then going off and working for Anderson Valley Brewing Company for a little over a year, uh, directing their quality assurance, designing a laboratory and their you know, quality control program, along with being like the third brewer and the cellar master and, you know, just kind of. You know, when you're out there in the sticks, you kind of do everything. And, and a lot of times these kind of breweries that are in these kind of crazy growth phases, even though it was the late 90s, <clears throat> you think about Anderson Valley or you think about the brewing landscape in 96, 95, 96, 97, 98, you know, it was kind of the doldrums a little bit. It already, the brewing industry kind of crashed and burned, but there was still like the World Beer Cup was going on. There was definitely. Uh, Anderson Valley was one of the better breweries back then, um, as far as this kind of regional player in our, you know, West Coast neighborhoods, uh, or area. And, um, so it was a good opportunity for me to learn kind of trial by fire. I mean, I do it all over again in a heartbeat, but, uh, it was a lot of work, you know, big, you know, 50, 60 hour weeks every week. Um, and, uh, you know, you just did everything, um, so after a while, though, I decided, you know, I got really kind of, I'd already been kind of kissed by the wine bug a little bit, and I'd worked doing experimental winemaking at Sterling and researching ology projects for them. And uh, so I was kind of pretty attuned to the wine industry as well. And I thought, you know, I'd kind of like to go back and do another vintage and travel around the world and make wine. 
I think, you know, I'm just making the same beer all the time. You know, how much Boone Amber can you make kind of thing? I thought, well, I really wanted, I already kind of saw the writing on the wall there. I was like, I'm just going to be stuck here making nine bucks an hour, working my butt off in the middle of nowhere. Like, I got to get out of here. Um, and so, you know, I was in my um, early 20s. And so I, uh, I, I kind of jumped ship and joined uh, Navarro Vineyards for kind of a, a longer harvest internship uh, enology job uh, under Jim Klein there, the winemaker at Navarro, and uh, that was 98. So fall of 98, I left Anderson Valley to uh, do the harvest at Navarro. And then after that, I bought a ticket around the world and I acquired a job in uh, Margaret River, southwestern Australia, as an assistant winemaker for six months. And so I, I literally hopped, skipped through New Zealand and visited wineries in Australia and then eventually got to southwestern Australia and Margaret River where I, I, I made wine uh, at Piero. And then after that, I kind of jumped through uh, Europe a bit and landed at a uh, Chateau d'Arsac in Bordeaux um, where um, I had a connection through uh, my uncle who had helped start a cooperage. And so, you know, when you're young and you're trying to get in and learn and get these jobs, you know, you've got to knock on every door you can and every connection you've got is a connection. And I mean, if there's any little bit of advice for people that are, you know, interested in traveling and, and you know, exploring the world is just keep knocking on those doors. Cause I mean, that's the way it, it, I never knew what was going to happen next until I just kept pushing on the knocking on those doors and it, it did happen. So I had this wonderful opportunity to work at Chateau d'Arsac in Bordeaux, which is a Cru Bourgeois, and Margot and Obadoc, uh AOCs there, and uh, got that kind of Madocian sort of perspective. I am kind of more of a Cabernet-focused guy, although I love <clears throat> all varieties of, of, of wine. Um, and uh, so then I came back to the States um, and got hired by uh, Beaubert at Chateau Montalena as his assistant winemaker. So I was there for about four years uh, managing the cellar. About, uh, we did about 40,000, 50,000 cases. Um, so quite a big jump up going from like 10 to 15,000 cases <clears throat> to, uh, to quite a bit uh, larger and a you know, bigger facility, bigger team, bigger estate. Uh, and then um, I left there to be a winemaker at Barnett Vineyards. Uh, in 04 to 06, and then I left to do some consulting, uh, and then I met uh, whom I work with now, David Long, and his family up on Pritchard Hill and David Arthur, and so I've been directing viticulture and winemaking there for, this will be my 13th vintage. Um, in 2012, and even before 2010, I was at David Arthur making the wines there, and my wife is also a winemaker at Fisher Vineyard, so we met in, I don't know, 06. 02 or 03 and then we ended up getting married in 07 um so a lot of wine in our in our world um and uh but in it was probably like 2010 or 09 i was i was always making beer at home continually <clears throat> you know you get ready for harvest and i'd be like okay i need three or four kegs of beer like ready to go and so i brew and put everything away and then i brew again put everything away and always have some beers on tap and um, it just kind of, I, I realized that the passion was still there. I really kind of missed it. And, um, I, and I love beer and the beer quality in Napa Valley has always been kind of lackluster, mediocre. And I just really felt like, God, there's such a good opportunity here. Like, why is all the good beer over in Sonoma and Marin and, 
in the in the Bay Area. It's just like no one can brew a good beer here. I mean, there are little brew pubs, and they're they're okay. They're okay. They're good. They can be really good, to, but good. Um, so I, I really felt like I wanted to do something more, you know, exceptional. And after kind of working through a number of different models and whatnot um, and meeting with potential partners and all the stuff, we kind of just threw up our hands and went, you know, let's just do it ourselves. And so Mad Fritz was kind of conceived in about 2012, 2013. And then we established our, our corporation, our S-Corp, in, in uh, the end of 13 and, and started kind of coming up with our whole concept. We really started building equipment in, in 13, uh, not even knowing where we were going to put it. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of uh, how things uh, began. Um, and that's a bit of the storyline leading up to uh, the beginning. Well, and that's an interesting um, kind of storyline as far as you got into beer, you left beer for wine, and then you came back to beer, or actually technically probably never completely left it, but um, but so you, you've effectively married what people love about beer and what people love about wine, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you is it doesn't have to be divisive. It doesn't have to um, create a uh, my team versus your team type of situation. Ultimately, we're talking about flavor profiles and experiences and relationships and how can those combine. And you have, have kind of effectively cultivated the best of both worlds. I mean, ideally, I, I think one of the things that's missing in beer is that um, it's always been a commodity-driven uh, product. I mean, it didn't always, it wasn't always like that. You know, if you go back 100 years, it wasn't like that because of transportation and refrigeration. Um, it, it, you know, it was about the people, it's about the place. I mean, these products all are. And wine is a very good example of that because it's always been tied to the place. And uh, that's one of the things that was really challenging with beer for me is I, I kind of burned out on, you know, just make feeling like you're just in an, you're, you're in an industrial setting. You just happen to be making, you know, a widget that's pretty cool called beer that you can drink, you know, and, and tastes pretty damn good. Um, but you, when you're making the same beer all the time, even with minor adjustments or whatever, it, it just is you're really in a factory I, I think that was one of the things that um, when I thought about, do I want to go become a professional brewer? That was one of the things that made me kind of second guess that. I, and just to be clear, I, I've never brewed commercially or professionally um, just because I love the joy of creating a small batch, something that spoke to me, something that I was interested in creating. But to say, hey, here's a here's our flagship beer. We're going to put this out uh, year round and it cannot change. It has to be the exact same widget, as you call it, widget, um, <laughs> as it was last year and it will be next year. And and that really takes the sex appeal out of beer for me. Um, I, no, and don't be mistaken. I, I love a good, consistent beer, but but these interesting beers are the ones that really capture my attention. Yeah, I think that that's where Mad Fritz, had I not had all the winemaking experience and perspective and working with all these different properties in different parts of the world or different parts of the valley or in Sonoma and Mendocino, you, you become more attuned to that raw material and like what that place is about or what the soil is about. And, you know, effectively you know, the question is, can we make a beer that reflects a place, not the ingredients per se, or not the recipe, let's say. The ingredients are the the place. 
Um, and, you know, some people would be like, hops are the grapes to beer. And it's just like, no, they're not. That's the barrel, you know, like the barrel and hops are basically the same thing. You can over oak a wine and you can over hop a beer, you know. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why these low ABV IPAs are incredibly uh, technical to make because balancing bitterness and low alcohols, it's a it's a harder balance than you might think. Um, and the same thing applies to oak. I mean, you can take a light, delicate wine and, and really hit it with oak and be like, ooh, ouch, you know, pull splinters out of my tongue, you know, mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> analogy. So I think that had I not had the winemaking experience, I wouldn't have looked at, or neither my wife or I would have looked at beer quite like this um, and forged ahead in this direction. Um, But, I mean, it certainly became much more kind of illuminating once we went, like, of course, like, why didn't we even think about this? This is, I mean, even took my, I like to joke because my father, uh, a a couple years ago, it's been six years we've had Mad Fritz, and so a couple years ago we're out at the beach, and he's like, no, I, I finally figured out what you're doing. It's farm to table for beer. And I'm like, yeah, Dad. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, I just thought it was a great little analogy, but also kind of like some, you know, some people just don't quite grasp what we're doing and be like, ah, I just don't get it. And you're like, well, it's pretty simple. Maybe you just don't know that much about kind of wine or, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. It's just kind of be- maybe opening your eyes a little bit to like that terroir beer that you had, uh, the Napa Ale. I like to say, well, it's brewed in kind of the recipe approach of maybe a pale ale, um, because a good beer should have some should have some bitterness, should have, you know, I mean, not a good beer, but let's say a beer that would reflect the ingredients well. It's like you want to have some hop character, you want to have some malt character, you want to have some water profile, you want to have these kind of yeast dimensions without the yeast becoming the beer. Um, and so uh, the terroir beer is kind of a beer where I say, well, it's kind of brewed like a pale ale. Although it really defines, it doesn't define a style. It's like, what is it? Well, it's just, it's a beer. It's made with these ingredients and it has bitterness. But, you know, is it, is it, what exactly is it? And, and so I think that that's also the conundrum that we deal with is that we, as we've commoditized our ingredients, as we've uh, driven towards a style based um, landscape of which people are rewarded by adhering to style guideline parameters, our, our resulting beers are, you know, they're kind of, they're not that they're bland or not exciting or good or, or bad. It's just that it's kind of pushed everybody in this one direction. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think that well, uh, there's, there's plenty of room for other ways of looking at beer and, and any product that you really produce. But I mean, beer, especially, um, has been kind of beaten up um, and, and just the lack of, it's not easy doing what we're doing, I guess, is the other side to it too. Like building our foundation of growing and malting and, and brewing, you know, it's taken time. And so it's not something that everyone can do in every location. Although I do have my kind of, you know, um, aspirations for the industry and, and things that I'd like you know, I'd love to see other breweries do. I mean, it's not just about us. It's about the industry and, and other, other craft uh, craft brewers and, and creators out there to, to follow and support their local farmers and, and, and to build, you know, opportunity for those farmers to, to add to the supply line to their beers and their products to make more unique, uh, you know, beers. Sorry, I'm, tan, you know, kind of... <laughs> 
<laughs> long line. The tail's getting longer here. Well, let, let, let's let's kind of dive into um, a part of what you j- just said was talking about. Um, I agree with you. Uh, hops are not the focus of a beer. To, uh, and I, I, I like uh, music analogies where I think of, um, you know, the water would be the, the drummer uh, or the percussion and the and the malt would be the bass line that just keeps everything, everything down. If you've got a really good basis, you've got a really interesting malt uh, flavor profile, then that's awesome. But now you've get that... Uh, lead guitar lick to me that's more like the hops that just kind of throws in a a little kind of uh accentuation that that grabs attention right away but without those pieces you you know you're not going to have anything i mean a a great guitar solo with no uh bass line or no drums backing it is just you know a little 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 much but Mm -hmm. but um and so i'm gonna land this plane just a sec but let me add one more little uh, thing um i had a really great conversation with uh, Seth, Seth Klon of Mecca Great Estate Malts, and we kind of talked about this thing about how malts uh, really can become more of a like a defining um, underlying uh, flavor profile. That um, the way that he does it, the way that you seem to be doing it, it really creates a regional flavor profile. And instead of this globalization of this uh, commoditized uh, commoditized widget of beer. We can start bringing uh, nuance and flavor and 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 interest in, in a regional landscape, so that we kind of go back to where we were hundreds of years ago, but in the best way possible. Yeah, we can apply modern, you know, the technology or the assets we have in, you know, beer production or malting uh, and transportation refrigeration to kind of take it the next step further, you know, and. Uh, I kind of like to say I have like a presentation I do about kind of growing your beer and, you know, and it's just like, what, what, you know, what were people drinking in 1910? You know, like, where was that beer from? And um, so we've really kind of lost that, you know, oh, well, most people just know, oh, they're adherent to their local brewery, but the local brewery themselves don't even, they don't know the variety of the barley or where it was grown or it's all blended and, um, and that's all great, but, you know, we've kind of lost touch with that. And I think that uh, Seth is, uh, been, you know, and, and many other craft maltsters have been re- leading the charge. The, the, one of our biggest issues in the landscape of what I call origin brewing, where we're adding more authenticity, we're describing these products based on where they're from and grown, uh, per se, uh, is that uh, people, even the consumers of the malt, let's say these breweries, are not asking where it's grown. They're not asking what variety. They're Even the maltsters themselves are still sticking to this classic platform of, well, I've got a Pilsner malt, I've got a Pale malt, I've got my Munich-style malt, I've got my Caramel series, I've got, oh, I've got some rye that we just harvested, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's all great, but... You, you know, you kind of don't know what's going on behind the curtain there. You're like, well, what varieties? Where was that grown? Did you grow that? Or how was that? Was that organic? Or, what? you know, how'd you prep the soil? Or, you know, what'd you do over there? What, you know, like, it's like maybe it's too much information for people because they don't know the farming side much or it's overwhelming to think of it. But it's really actually quite simple. Um, you know, growing barley is not that complex. Um and so I think that, um, and then you've got the consumer interface, which is like, is the consumer asking for this? Well, not really. I mean, I, I just was looking for some uh, domestic hollertau and saws, and I spoke to a, 
a hop broker because a lot of these hop farms in Idaho and Washington don't, um, uh, they're not actually selling, they're selling through these brokers or wholesalers. And, um, I, you know, I was surprised, you know, these people don't even, that are brokering the hops, don't even know where they're from. I mean, it's just, it's, they just, they have to go figure that out because it's like this, oh, no one even asks where the, the hops are grown. They just want sots or hollertow or they want this or that. And it's just, they want a flavor. They don't want like the origin. Um, and so, you know, that's where I think we're also, you know, I think it's a very simple step of just saying like, hey, it's from here. Like, that's that. Hey, how great is that? Just kind of put the origin of where it's, you know. Uh, anyway, and, I, and I think that that conversation. Well, and, and I love your soapbox. I, I, I would stand on the same soapbox um, because, the, you know, the idea of terroir in origin and stuff like that is 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 kind of an emerging i don't want to say an emerging idea but an emerging uh, concept in the beer world uh particularly with breweries like yours um but you know i've spoken like i mentioned seth from uh, mecca grade i've uh, spoken with uh, liz at coleman farms um and if and a few others um uh, wolves and people uh for example these are these are breweries that are thinking about terroir on their beer they're thinking about um the in- ingredients and what the ingredients taste like and the story of the ingredients um uh even going back to like uh crux fermentation uh in bend you know even larry sador goes to the point where he knows where the grains come from and he's milling them specifically according to what the grain is he's i mean they're paying attention to these minutia of details that that the you know another brewer might think i got pilsner malt that is a static ingredient let's go make our beer now there there is a next layer above there's a next um uh way to upgrade our beer from a commodity to something more artful and and more communicative yeah now i mean if you're just i mean if you're taking all that attention and then you're making a hazy juicy ipa i mean i think you got to ask yourself (laughs) what are you doing uh but then again I, i mean look to each their own and uh um i think um it I think that's what I think the where that's the future of the beer because the struggle is with eight thousand some breweries differentiation is um, at a critical point and if you don't have a storyline um, then you're 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 not dead in the water I mean it all is going to depend on your location your demographic pool that's available there for you as customers and 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 you know maybe your sales outlets and how you how you do that but um, in general. You know, if you're going to be out there, too many people are doing the same thing um, because of this kind of commodity-style-driven culture we're in with beer. Um, you know, I almost call it like the cartoon or comic book can culture. You know, what we're dealing with here is like, what's the next can art with, you know, and maybe it sounds a little, you know, old manny, but I just... I, you know, it's all cool and it's super artistic, and there's some great ideas. Uh, don't get me wrong; I think it's it's super cool. It's a great format. I just, I, you know, it's not it's not our category. It's not where we want to be. Um, so I, I just, yeah, I, the more people that do this and especially support their local monsters and growers, the better because that's what's, you know, no farms, no food, as they say. You know, and and we need we need farmers. Um, and so everyone needs to be a part of this process. And yeah, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, one or two people. 
Now that's great. So let let's use this as a little springboard. I wanted to find out about how how you're dealing with your your malt, given what you've just talked about, and and so I know you are uh, getting malt from some other uh, boutique, um, uh, you know, really well uh, high end maltsters. But um, you're also doing some malt at your own farm, if I understand correctly. Will you expound on that? Yeah. So when we started, we knew that we wanted to make um, beers of origin. Um, we didn't really even call it origin brewing. We were kind of not sure what to call it. Now, is that um, is that to say, you know, like a, a is that synonymous with a smash beer, a single malt, single hop, or are you talking about origin in a completely different context? Well, I I, I would say that smash beer is inherently the direction you need to go because as much as you can, if you're going towards origin, there's not really a way to get around that. Um, if you want to be true to authenticity of origin, then you need to kind of stick towards smash. You can't just have hops from Washington and Oregon and hops from Idaho and hops from New Zealand in the same beer and say, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, I don't know. It, it's not really going to illuminate any of those products really well. You're just getting this kind of recipe sort of thing where you're going to get all these flavors, right? Which is great. You know, it's probably going to taste awesome, but uh, assuming <laughs> you're doing. Uh, but I'd say that if you're going to make an origin-specific beer, you need to lean towards a, you know, smash beer. Um, and so we knew that we were going to do that. So what styles did we start out with? How did we go about this? Well, we, first we had to find the closest craft maltster to us, which was Rebel Malting in Reno, Nevada. Um, I don't think they're malting anymore. We acquired one of their kilns and uh, their seed cleaner, or the malt cleaner, and a few things, but um, from Lance Jurgensen there. And that was in 2014 when we started. Well, we started brewing with his grains in 2013, knowing kind of where we wanted to go. And so we chose styles that would work really well to smash platform, like a golden strong ale. Uh, he also had some malted blue corn, so we made a blue corn pale ale. Um, and we did kind of an old world IPA, and we were using local hops from over the hill in Clear Lake. So we knew that was 45 minutes from our house. So we had a hop yard just over the hill from Calistoga. So, I mean, the access was actually not that bad, but to think that the closest craft monster was in Reno, Nevada, and the barley was grown in Fallon, I mean, it was like, man, like there's no one malting. Like, this is crazy. We got four craft malsters that are four malsters that, you know, supply all these breweries with malts. I mean, I like to use the analogy. It's like 6,000 wineries and four vineyards. I mean, God, like what the hell is going on here? Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then, and we started working with Colorado Malting Company. I reached out to Andrea at Valley Malt. Uh, we started working with Deer Creek. Um, and the East Coast barleys are a little different than the West Coast and the, in the, um, in the Midwest. Uh, they can have a little bit more flavor to them, a little bit more personality, um, which I think really is, is wonderful. I mean, it's the kind of difference between, let's say, a, a Riesling and a Chardonnay or, you know, a Gewürztraminer and a Riesling or, you know, it, it just, there's, or coffee. The coffee analogy is always great. It's like, what's the difference between, um, let's say, a Guatemalan and, uh, and, um, an Ecuador or, uh, coffee or, you know, you, 
So, I mean, you, you know, these are different flavor spectrums that we kind of lost. And so playing around with this drove the beers and drove the beer styles themselves, who they were, what the personality of that finished beer would be, was so, you know, inherent in the raw material, especially the grain, when you have these kind of savory uh, elements in them that, uh, you know, it was just, it was kind of like a whole new world for me. I was just like, oh my God, like, I can't believe what we're tasting here. It's just so cool. It just had so much personality. Now, were they perfect executed beers? No. Um, did some have DMS or these little issues that you might kind of, you know, get a little particular about where the extract efficiency is really high, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, you can punch holes in this all day long, but the fact of the matter is, you can, well, is it a good beer? Does it have a personality? Um, and kind of just turning your mind, bending your mind a little bit in your palate to kind of look at the product a little differently and be, it's from a place. And, um, so, uh, we started growing barley as soon as we started the brewery in 2014. And we had, uh, uh, there was a five acre parcel on my wife's family's property that was open and they weren't planting for, uh, they weren't going to replant the vineyards for a while. So we thought, well, let's, let's chuck some barley on there. So we, we ran around trying to find barley seed anywhere we could. And it was a heck, it was really difficult, uh, in 14 for some odd reason. We had to get it from the, uh, Central Valley. And we ended up getting some Hockett, I think. Um, and got that in the ground. I think we got some Copeland from uh, Rebel Malt before uh, they brought a shipment and brought us some barley. So we were able to plant two varieties on that five acres. And um, and we we had no idea how we were going to harvest it, whether we'd harvest it, and how the heck we were going to malt it. We just thought, let's just grow it because we can. And we've got the we've got the disc, we've got the seed drill. Let's get it in the ground and let's just see what happens. You know, watering, you know, all dry farmed. Um, and so we ended up harvesting in 15, and I, I, that's uh, we brewed more recently a, a terroir beer with that uh, barley. So there's still decent viability. It's not perfect, but it's, it's probably 90, 95% viability, like germination rate. So you're still able to get a pretty good malt out of it. Um, so uh, that kind of started the ball rolling and really like, wow, we did it. I remember walking backwards over five acres for about three or four hours. I, I never walked backwards that long in my life. It was the weirdest thing, but I, I had to be there. There was so much brome that's just kind of like a needle-looking seed that was getting inside of the barley as we were harvesting. I had to I had to pull it out of the barley um, while we were harvesting because uh, it was getting jammed up in the uh, grain hopper. So basically, it was like a manual bag by bag by bag, little brutes and. Um, so yeah, it was it was a pain in the ass, but it got, you know it's kind of one of those things. Where you look back and you go, oh, it wasn't that bad. But at the time, you know, and it's like that with a lot of things in life. You kind of go, God, that that really sucks. But then you go, eh, just get through it, and it'll be all it'll be over before you know it. And I think as you get older, you realize, yeah, you know, this sucks, but you know what, it'll it'll be over, and and we'll have a great product when it's done. And you'll look back and laugh, you know, and. um so that's kind of how that started. And then uh, Rebel Malting was kind of slowing down the production. We were forced to actually go get malt from other people. Um, we did actually get the first delivery of Mecca malt here at Mad Fritz. Uh, uh, Seth and his father drove it down uh, and dropped it off. It was kind of this crazy, they call it a three-legged coyote, um, and it was some sort of munich malt. And so we brewed with it and... And we've been brewing with them, uh, working with them since. I think that was 
16 or 17, um, or might have been 15, I think it was 16. Um, and then we've devised recipes around these maltsters. So each maltster that we have has a set of labels that go with it. So we know what variety it was and what property county it was grown on. Um, I mean, certainly you could get to GPS coordinates and all this crap, but literally just kind of focused on the broad landscape of county uh, and variety uh, for the sake of like, you know, it's it's harder and harder to keep tabs on this sometimes. Certain properties like um, the Colorado Malting guys, uh, the Cody's, they have a really good hold on their estate, you know, and growing their barley and the varieties they're using and, and their malting equipment. Uh, and the same thing goes with Seth at Rebel. Um, Deer Creek, I think they've got a few sourcing areas. Uh, Valley Malt's kind of moved around a little bit, which has made it tricky, but also kind of exciting, too, because you're like, oh, this one came from Canastota. This one came from o- Ovid. This, you know, and these are different varieties. And so to me, I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store going, oh, let's try this one. Oh, let's try that. It's like you just got a new set of coffee beans from your favorite roaster from another origin, and you you can't wait to you know, make that espresso shot or that cappuccino or, a, you know, uh, a pour over or something, you know, and taste it. Um, and, and so that's kind of uh, was part of the original journey. And then when we got the malting equipment, um, I was a little nervous to malt with the uh, with the first uh, with the Calistoga stuff. I was like, I had so little of it. I didn't want to mess it up. And so Doug Mosel, who runs the Mendocino Grain Project up in Mendocino, so he's about uh, – couple hours away from us he's got a couple combines and he had worked with a biodynamic farmer kind of like a i don't know if they're really a commune farm but definitely a little bit more hippy dippy out there in round valley uh in mendocino county and they had a biodynamic uh, horse plowed vineyard or uh plot and then you know i don't know if you're familiar with the biodynamic platform of farming uh but uh it's certainly a little bit more uh, astrological in approach um, and with a unique amount of input, uh, but typically fairly, you know, um, hands-on. And uh, so we ended up with four or 500 pounds of that, and we malted that. And, and so that was, I think, 16 was the first year we really made our own house malted beer, and uh, we used that um, biodynamically grown. Um, I think it was, what was the variety? Pinnacle was a variety, the two-row variety. So, you know, again, you get to play around with these different varieties of barley, see how they work. And, um, you know, a lot of it is the kilning side um, and knowing your system and your process, how it works and timing things right and looking at each batch so you watch it. Um, You know, frankly, malting isn't that hard. Um, You know, people have been doing this for millennia. So it's just one of those things you just have to develop a process in the system and um, some quality control points and keep things clean and tidy and then know uh, what your system can and can't do and then monitor it. Um, So that's what we've been doing for the last, you know, three years, uh, three, three, three and a half years of malting is is just kind of dialing the system in, like uh, playing around with, you know, how like our most recent allocation to our memberships was a terroir trial of the Napa Ale. It was the same beer grown, uh, one in Calistoga, one in Oak Knoll, uh, same variety, Hockett, two-row, um, malted one week apart in our malt house exactly the same way, and then we brewed the same beer 
uh, one week apart with the same hops from the same farm and the water from the same well in Calistoga. So they're literally mirrors of each other. The only thing different in these two beers is the origin of the barley, the Hockett variety two-row. So, you know, proteins will be a little bit different. I mean, that's the other thing I think that's crazy is, you know, malt is, malted barley is, or barley from malting is grown with these really tight specs. And, and there's reasons for that, you know, color and control on the malting side and Consistency. knowing how the system works. And, yeah. uh, but also you kind of like, so what if the malt protein's over 14? Like, like, so what? Like, if your malt is over 14 proteins, you know, these big craft, these big malsters won't take it. And I, I think there's there's a lot there. I mean, what's the difference between dry farming barley and you know irrigating barley? And what does that result? You know, and well, in the, in the market, in the market has quality all... and flavor at all. You know, there are these dimensions in grape growing that we look at uh, time and time again and look at the minutiae, but no one pays attention to this kind of stuff when it comes to flavor. You know, we're we're talking about. I think I just saw a uh, a spec sheet for one of these uh, malt groups or something that are talking about, you know, Idaho or some variety of barley. And they said the descriptors were like clean and crisp and, you know, like maybe, maybe biscuity or something, but it was all like clean, like, okay, well, so there's no flavor. You just bread it all out of it, you know, like well, <laughs> what's left, you know? Uh, so I, I think that that's the one thing that people are not talking about when it gets to malt. It's like, Where's the flavor? You well, know, where's the beef? You know, where is it? In, the, in, in these days... Don't be scared of this. In these days, the market has shown that as long as the flavor is there, people are okay with hazy beers. So, you know, upping the protein content, as long as it brings the flavor, it, that should be perfectly fine. And as I recall that um, that beer that I had, it, it was a bit hazy and it was a bit churned up. And but the flavor, uh, like I said, that, I mean the flavor was just exceptional, and it really it really didn't have to be a clean beer. No, I mean I've gone back and forth on that. Like, ah, should we get a centrifuge? Should we do this? Should we do that? It's just like uh, our customers don't want that. They just want it as raw as possible. You know, they want it as pure and as soulful as you know the ingredients that are used in it. Just don't mess with it. Well, and that's the thing I appreciate about what you're doing is is you are essentially a farmhouse-style beer, but you're not putting out sours. You're not, at least, to, you know, not yet, not to my knowledge, but, I mean, you're putting out uh, table beers that are just several steps above their counterparts in the market. I mean, the, the, the lagers, the pails, I mean, it, it, I mean, you're not putting out lambics or, or anything else like that. I mean, I did see a grisette and, and probably a saison, but, but it's a different, it's a different concept of farmhouse beers that you're putting out. Yeah. And I think people have been kind of like a little tweaked on the terminology of farmhouse. And, you know, it's funny cause we don't really use that terminology to describe what we are. I mean, it's kind of like we call it origin brewing. It's all about authenticity of ingredients. And you talk about like, you know, this is a farmhouse beer. Well, what makes it a farmhouse? If you don't have a malt house and you're not sourcing local, like to me, that's the first question I ask, like what's so farmhouse about your farm? Is it the yeast you're using? Is that farmhousey? You know, I mean, like let's just call a spade a spade here, you know, <laughs> and people wanting to use these terms. I just think, uh, you know, I, I think it's a bunch of baloney. Um, but then again, I mean, it, it, it gets used in the context of style and when the market and what consumers are 
um, are, let's say, used to hearing that they go, oh, this is a farmhouse beer, so it's going to taste a little bit more funky or sour or this or that. So it's, you start generalizing and categorizing a name becomes a reference to a style versus a um, maybe a platform or a, a foundation, um, which I would say, like, you know, are we a farmhouse brewery? I, I don't know. We don't really, we're not on a farm, but we have access to farms and we're near farms and we're farming our ingredients, but we're not just walking out our door making with barley sitting there. We, you know, we can't afford that. We're in a warehouse area south of San Helena. Um, with a malt house and a you know a malting floor and a hop kiln and and then a little brewery, um, we don't you know yeah we, we can't afford that kind of thing here. But um, it would be cool. But you know look, I don't I don't know. I mean I I think that those are uh, we don't do sours uh, simply because it's not it, it's a little bit too complex to do that in the same environment of of clean beers in barrel and because everything we make is aged in barrel typically um it you got to be careful with you know small bacteria like that um and so and and we also just kind of like that's not really our passion like we're not really passionate sour beer drinkers um we like them and enjoy them and love you know paul arney stuff at ale apothecary and um you know what what other folks are doing um but we you know we kind of have to also kind of go back to the intent of who are we what are we doing you know and and what do we like um and and so i i think that that's kind of helped us kind of define who we are a bit more um I don't know if I answered your question. I think I'm just tangenting here. No, no, that, uh, yeah, that, that was a good discourse. I mean, it, it was just the, the, the concept of farmhouse brewing. Um, it, it's kind of fun. It's really hard to define, but it's fun to try. It's almost like trying to define exactly what folk music is. And, and you know, it, it's we can go in the far reaches of what that means, and preferably we'll have a beer to kind of help uh, boost those rockets a bit. But um, but you did, uh, you did make a comment a while back about your labeling, and I wanted to ask you about that specifically because, you know, uh, on most of the beers you have a you know, a, a series of animals. And then in the very back, you have like this little fable that uh, just very short, like two, three sentence fable that, that almost reads like the uh, wine or high end beer version of a fortune cookie. But what, what's the story behind that? So, I mean, all the beers, like the lion and other beasts, let's say that's the grisette we made. Um, a lot of times I look at these beer styles as almost kind of a palate flavor palette. So you're like, oh, well, that beer style, even though it's kind of unknown, is like a great beer style um, that would be fun to brew within our landscape or our family of beers. So we have 40-some beers now that we make, all in rotation based on availability of ingredients. Um, But uh, all the beers are named after Aesop's fables, other than a few other beers that we have in our kind of lineup um, that are like the Oast House and the Terroir uh, and, uh, we have kind of a new, kind of a newer IPA uh, platform coming out with experimental hops that are out there. Um, but in general, most of the beers are fable driven. So we like to say Mad Fritz, a fabled beer. So the idea is that these are all Aesop's fables from, uh, you know, 500, 600 BC. And so the idea was to name our beers rather than be, you know, like it's the hoptimator, it's the farmhouse, you know, 
monster or the, you know, just come up with these kind of fanciful names. This is a much more, I'd say, maybe more sophisticated way to describe the beers. And also, our children are Madeline and Fritz. They're now 10 and 7, but when we started the brewery, you know, they're quite young. And so we read these fables to them, and uh, my wife thought of the idea, Whitney thought of the idea, like, hey, why don't we use these fables to describe our beers and beer names? And I thought, that's brilliant. Let's do that. And um, so that's what you're looking at. When you look at the front label, you're looking at this really unique image that was made in uh, the 17th century by uh, mostly an artist named uh, Francis Barlow, um, and it's all public domain. And so we basically took these images, kind of cleaned them up, added color, um, and then rewrote the fables uh, and the moral on the back. Uh, and then adjacent to that is the list of ingredients. So, um, yeah, it does. I mean, a lot of people are like, where's the UPC code? I'm like, we're not, you know, you think you're going to buy this in the supermarket? Like, no way, dude. Like, you kind of got to know what your product is. Like, it's just, that's not where our product is meant to be. Our, our product is not meant to be on a shelf and scanned in when you're buying your six-pack of Ballast Point you know, sculpt an IPA, you know, it's just, it's, we're not going to be that product. We can't be that product. We won't be that product. You can't do what we're doing in that landscape. You just can't. It's, we can't compete. Uh, there's just no way. It costs too much to do what we do. And so taking that UPC off and being like, hey, let's put some more content on there. Let's make this kind of an experience for people. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's what the back label is all about. That's what the names are about. Um, obviously, we have a few that people would recognize, like the boy who cried wolf, or uh, the wind in the sun is maybe some people know that one. Uh, the tortoise and the hare, of course, we don't have that one yet, but <laughs> I kind of stayed away from some of those more uh, obvious fables just because you want to twist people's head a little bit too. Um, well, it did have the effect of drawing you in, and um, and and I figured they were uh, fables, but it, it's been so long since I've read the Aesop's fables that I I didn't recognize them. But but it it did have the effect of drawing me in, and once I recognized that you actually had that on each label, I wanted to stop and read each one. It was it was a, a you added to that experience. It was a very interesting uh, way approach. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Well, thank Whitney for thinking of it, and it, you know, some of those things just happen, and um, we're very fortunate that you know that's kind of been our platform. I think it's been it it works with our product. It's timeless. I mean, I think that's another thing is we're not interested in having a whole new branding exercise. I think our branding speaks well to our craft, and you know, our authenticity of origin, and sometimes these older images and you know, whether contrived or not, you, you know, or that perspective gives a sense of timelessness to it, which I think is important for our style of product. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, and uh, so one thing I want to ask, and this will kind of segue into this one, is, is you know, I, I've always um, kind of hypothesized that flavor is just another form of communication, it, just like art communicates or a song takes you to a place in time or whatever that may be. But uh, if flavor is a form of communication, what is what do your beers have to say? Well, you know, they definitely, we make them, um, and then when they go to barrel, they're not sour beers, but they typically sit in barrel between a few weeks to, you know, maybe a year for like our Saison. Um, 
but in general, let's say on average two to three months. And when you taste the beer, um, going back to the Grisette is a great example. We kind of changed, played around with a different yeast strain, and uh, we just tasted it last week. And, I mean, it's it's pretty good, you know, but it's not quite there yet. And I think, I'm not sure if this would really answer the question, but beers kind of tell you when they're finished. And uh, this beer isn't finished, you know. It just needs to sit there, and maybe it's a little bit too bitter. The yeast hasn't really finished working. It's just ticking away very slowly and chipping away at those residual sugars um, or, you know, somewhat uh, those disaccharides that are left in there or trisaccharides that are floating around. It's chipping away and it's telling us like, hey, I'm here, but I'm not ready yet. And it's going to be probably another month. And, you know, you never, you kind of, these beers aren't made on a production schedule like, okay, this month we're doing this and let's lay out the calendar and duk, 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 duk. it's kind of like, well, I guess we're not going to release the grisette for another month or two. All right. Well, what else do we have going? Uh, huh. We could do this. We could do that. You know, um, I think the beers tell you when they're ready. Um, the yeast itself, you know, offers its personality and, and ideally it's, it's a nuance versus overt character. Um, and that the dimension of the malt speaks to, you know, that core. Um, we don't typically add any sugar to our boils or uh, just, just to carbonate. So the idea is that all of our beers are all malt beers other than, let's say, adjuncts like corn or um, blue corn or uh, snoring wheat or white wheat or red wheat uh, or some other random ingredients. Um, but that would be a grain. Uh, but ideally, the, the beer itself is kind of has its own personality. It has its own life and it lives, it's born, it's created, and then it fades. Um, and, you know, there's a window there. We have a pretty good window of life expectancy for our products in bottle. Um, and I'd say the sweet spot's usually about three months in bottle when most beers are kind of fading. We get to that like 60, 90, 120 day and um, post bottling date that's on the side of the bottle. Um, and, uh, and that gives you that kind of lens. It's kind of peaking there. Obviously it depends on style, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of have this life expectancy to optimize all those flavors and get that kind of bottle bouquet, uh, but also get all those flavors melding together. Um, you know, hopefully they speak to the place and the style and, and, and our craft, uh, is, is probably the answer. There is never one thing, um, well, well, let me ask you a question, too, uh, that it just occurred to me, but I, I think my listeners would want to know. I, I'm curious as well, but uh, I am I'm all for these wonderful, artful, barrel-aged, high-end beers. But at some point, you've got to pay the electric bill. You've got to get some sales. And, and I think that's the, the beauty of Hazy's is they're, they're paying everyone's electric bills right now. How are you able to manage these beers with with something to say, with this artfulness and this flavor? And but you know, how do you manage that with the business side of what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, we we started out with some kind of obscure styles, um, but also kind of more traditional. You know, we wanted to showcase the ingredients, not not the style, um, and so. We, when we launched the brewery in September, we were brewing in July of 14, but, you know, of course the beers weren't ready till September. 
Uh, so just with the some barrel aging and whatnot. Um, and uh, so we realized we were so cash, we were so in debt. Now, we didn't do a loan or anything. We had a little bit of capital to start out with, but not a lot. And then we were just kind of credit card was maxed. You know, we didn't really go to family yet, but we were just kind of like, let's just launch this thing. We had a couple, you know, on-premise accounts here that were thumbs up. We're going to pour your beer. Uh, and then we uh, we launched a membership um, using kind of more of a wine model. Uh, and at the time, Patrick Rue and the brewery, I think, was one of the few other breweries doing this. Um, and so we applied that platform to help us through the rest of the year and just kind of get through um, paying, paying the the, the more the, the lease on the on the building we we're on um, and that worked out pretty well we sold out pretty quickly and then we opened it up again uh, in January um, and kind of padded it up a little bit more and then the, the whole the the beer club kind of started catching on and and that's really sustained us I mean the overhead here is quite expensive in this in this area it's it's um, challenging. Uh, we don't have a very big crew. Um, you know, it's kind of owner-operated in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, so the membership has sustained us. And, and then it's also given us a platform to showcase our best stuff, um, the stuff that we think represents Mad Fritz or that's unique or um, that we put our heart and soul into these products and, and, and showcase, you know, the uniqueness of, of these styles and uh, some of the historical elements of them as well. Uh, but that's how we've done it. You know, we haven't, you know, made hazy juicies, you know, and I think that that, 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 that window will never close, but it's going to become just another style that's out there. Um, and I think that people are going to, you know, there are already uh, so many breweries are having to jump on the hard seltzer uh, bandwagon to sustain themselves just because once you start following those trends and you know, your intent or your why of existence is not that grounded in a, a platform. I think if it's just style driven and what the masses want, you just have, you kind of have to adhere to that to a certain degree. You might get to do some of the things you like, but I, I you know, it's, again, it's, it's not, I have another full-time job as a winemaker. So that's given me the flexibility not to depend wholly on this personally, although my employees do, I can pull back a little bit and work hard to keep the business intact and also be more passion driven. Um, you know, is that the right model? You know, do I want to do this hundred percent? I, I do, but I also really enjoy my day job of, you know, directing one of the most amazing vineyards in Napa Valley up on Pritchard Hill and making these wines that, you know, I never dreamed I'd be in that position, but you know, it's one of those things you just, you know, once you're, in you have an opportunity to do that you just don't want to let go um it's just too fun i mean it might be hard and it might be you know you work extra long but and uh, but the the reward and the opportunity to do that and be a part of that story is is really wonderful so i think that that's another way of looking at the, how i've been able to be financially successful with the the business is that i i haven't compromised a thing and i've retained what i love uh you know fermentation and and i've had the ability to have a very supporting uh day job um 
that that supports my my personal endeavor uh, at, at Matt Fritz. So I think there there's memberships. There's uh, our tap room. Uh, we opened that two years ago, um, pretty much two years ago, and and that's been a I wouldn't say a game changer. It's just offered more more access to what we did for four years. We were by appointment only, so you literally have to make an appointment to come to the brewery and taste. Um, and so it was a different experience. We still offer that today. Um, and that I think is also a great way to visit and see, you know, Oh, those are the waters. You know, we can taste different waters from different wells. You can taste, you know, beers that you won't taste at the tap room. You'll be around us in the brewery around the equipment. You can see what we're doing. I mean, there's really nothing to hide. You know, there's no recipe. There's no, you know, this isn't about like our secret recipe and of uh, some special beer that everyone's standing in line for. You know, we just, we don't, you know, it's all about the ingredients and uh, adhering to that. And I think that that's been the success for us is to just be true, open, pure of heart and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, communicating this message to our consumers so that they know what they're getting. Um, and have our beers always landed on target? No. Have we made changes and tweaked things? Yes, we've had to. And, and we still kind of know, like, okay, you know, where are we going next? Like, what's, where, what do we need to work on? Where's our quality faults? Like, what, what needs, not faults, but, you know, quality issues. Like, how do we you know, malt better? How do we kiln our hops better? How do we um, clean better? Um, how, do, how do we keep the noise out of certain barrels? Or uh, how do we keep diastaticus over here and not over there? Or, you know, there's so many things that we're constantly kind of trying to evaluate because quality is really in the details, you know, and, and the consumer may not perceive that, but when they get all those messages together and they see how passionate we are about the product and that there's really no, it's full transparency. Um, I think that that's part of the success. Um, and, and so getting those messages across is critical. And you are in an area where people do appreciate quality. So it is, you are kind of aligning products to demand too, it seems. Yeah, I'd say that that's, that's a good point. I mean, it's a, demographic platform in which we talked about earlier, like if you're surrounded by a number of breweries in like 20 breweries, like let's say, um, you know, up in Bend, Oregon, you know, where you got 20, 30, 40 breweries or something crazy. I don't know how many are there, but you know, that's, that's a very competitive saturated market. And you could say the same thing. If you're a winery opening up in downtown San Elena, well be warned, you know, you better be different um, because you're surrounded by hundreds of wineries, yeah. so you're just one in uh, one in a hundred, um, and and so that can be very challenging. Um, you know, and one of the things I when started with immediately is like, hey, this is wine, this is beer in a wine glass. You know, like it, put the shaker pints away. You know, like and um, you know, so you're right that the landscape within Napa Valley, if you were to call it kind of you know Disneyland for adults, you know, when it comes to wine. Uh, that certainly, you know, comes to mind a bit. Um, so you have people that are already, you know, kind of ready for that experience. Although you get different people from different levels. You know, we get people that are big-time wine buyers that have huge sellers and spend 
tens of thousands of dollars on their wine. And then you get people that are just like, they love good beer and they're super passionate. And that's, I mean, I'd say that, you know, Stefan Marr, who works with me and Emily Palmer, who works with me, um, they're just, they're true beer people and they love beer so much and they're so passionate about it. And I think that that is critical too. It's like finding good people that really love what you're doing and love the product, like no matter what it is, whether it's a hazy juicy or whatever, they just love beer. And I think that that in itself, you want to get those people in too, because Hey, we want to show you these other cool styles we're making. What do you think? You want, what do you think of our triple? What do you think of our double? What do you think of, you know, our abbeys and, uh, or, you know, like get feedback and, and get perspective. And, um, so I, that's the tap room has been, been good for that. Although, you know, there is that kind of movement where tap rooms are starting to evolve and almost small restaurants and stuff. And I, I think I want to be pretty conscientious about that in general. Like, we're a brewery. We're not a restaurant. We're not a beverage company. We're, we're a brewery. And, and that's, that's our focus. And again, what's our intent? Who are we? Why do we exist here? Who are the people that helped us get here? Let's make sure that they get what they need. And, and we're all kind of working together here in, in our in our community. No, that's great. Um so just for the sake of time, I've got a few uh, kind of like wind down questions that uh, to ask you, and and so we'll just get some rapid fire uh, answers on it. Um, but uh, if if I could make you the king of the beer world for a day, what would you change? I would ask um, consumers to pay more for uh, breweries that produce beers that were state and county specific. So let's say you're in Colorado and you walked into, you know, uh, let's say you walked into Crooked Stave and they had a Colorado only water, barley hops, you know, ale instead of, you know, six bucks a pint, it was 10 that you were willing to pay that and wanting to pay that money for that beer and say, I'm supporting those farmers. And, and that, that would be, you'd actually have, uh, some interest in tasting and supporting and producing that beer and that the brewery themselves would be like, Hey, we sold an extra 300 barrels of, uh, you know, our Colorado only, you know, beer. We should keep m- making that. Let's keep that batch going. That's really, you know, and Hey, let me call my maltster and tell him, Hey, we're going to take another couple pallets. And that's what, you know, a New York only beer, not just 20%, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these breweries that are, are trying to lean towards larger and larger volumes of uh, local grains, um, the better. And and also giving credence to the state. Now, not every state can do this. I mean, obviously, Hawaii and Alaska, you know, you're going to have some troubles doing this in every state. But it's certainly possible. Um, so county, state level beers, I think. And, and, and charging up for them so that it makes financial sense. And uh, if I were, you know, king of the beer world, I'd say, no, this is what this is what needs to happen, you know, and that, you know, this is going to help local farmers continue to grow and maybe younger farmers to come into the market and say, you know, I'm just going to grow barley for the beer market because they need, you know, we need more barley and there's no one doing it over here, and you know, and so all of a sudden you got some kid taking over his father's farm or the grandfather's farm because it was just going to get sold anyway. But now 
it's staying in the family, you know, and it's not just some big farm and, oh, you know, we got some Chinese investor that's going to, you know, buy it and gobble it up and there it goes, you know, like, yeah, you got a bunch of money, but what happened to the local, you know, and now all that grain's going to China or going somewhere else? Like, I mean, let's try and keep this, you know, farming community going. And this is a state, county by county, city by city, state by state thing. And I think, I think a community of consumers needs to, you know, pay more attention to that because it, it really is going to work in their benefit in the long run. So, uh, if you had the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart the earth, what would they be? God, that's a tough one. Um, hmm. My last meal. Oh, golly. Um, well, uh, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I love a good check pills and a good grisette. Um, it's got to have a little bit of a snap to it. Uh, but um, what would that pair with is the question. Um, your last meal. Oof. Golly. You know, there's always that question of like, well, do you choose the beverage before you choose what you're eating? Or do you choose what you're eating and then you choose your beverage? You know, and that's when you walk into a restaurant and you look at the wine list, you kind of like, you kind of have to decide when well, you look at the food and you go, well, what's... Where's my, you know what I mean? I, I, do you, I don't know how you do it, but I always kind of can go either way. I'm kind of like, well, what's the wine list? Like, oh, my God, there's a yeah. good deal here. Like, let's grab that guy. Okay, now what are we eating? Unless there's um, a beer I really, really want to try and, and just drink, um, mm-hmm. I usually figure out what I'm going to eat first and then and then choose the beer afterwards that's going to complement it best. That's That's my go-to move pretty much every time. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I think... You know, your last meal, though, God, that's, I mean, golly, I mean, maybe like a, a homemade pasta with fresh, uh, some fresh vegetables on there and uh, um, some fresh grated cheese or some telame on there and a nice brisette or something that's got a little bit of a, not acidity, but just a little bit more cleanliness or a golden strong ale. It'd be kind of in that zone, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, that... Um, DuPont Saison kind of like style where you, you've just got kind of everything going. It's not too complex so that it doesn't overwhelm the food, but you've got homemade pasta that's nice and thin. Um, and, uh, and, and you just get that kind of textural thing from the, the butter and the, and the cream. Uh, you know, that, that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think something like that, a good synergy uh, between uh, those, those two dimensions. Perfect. And then uh, with uh, the summation of your experiences, why does good beer matter? Well, quality matters. Um, and a quality is a very subjective term that we use to define either something good or bad. Um, and and it obviously depends on the individual, um, what they find to be quality or not. Um Good beer matters just because it reflects the ingredients. And, you know, it also reflects its reflection of you um, and, and the product you produce. If you don't produce good beer, then, I mean, I, I just, you know, why are you drinking beer? You know, like, or why are you making beer? Uh, good beer matters because, it, you know, quality matters and integrity matters. And that's, 
that's it. You know, you are what you drink, you are what you eat. Like, don't put junk down there, you know, like, um, savor it. Perfect. Um, and, and finally, you know, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, or especially if they want to get a hold of some of your beer, how can they connect and find your beer? Uh, the best way to get a hold of us is just email us, uh, Nile at mattfritz.com, or just go to mattfritz.com, um, and you'll see a contact list, uh, Stefan Marr, Stefan at mattfritz.com, uh, who works closely with me, um, but uh, that's probably the best way uh, we can, you know, help facilitate uh, locating where to get it. Um, oftentimes, if you're in California, we can get it to you overnight pretty quickly um, and a very affordable rate. Um, out of state, it gets a little bit more technical, but you can certainly email us and uh, we can see if there, there are any avenues. Um, we do have a list of places that you can enjoy our beers. Um we aren't widely in distribution. Uh, if you're in Copenhagen, uh, you could go to Geranium, but I think they may be sold out right now. Uh, if you were in Utah, Stein, Stein Erickson's, uh, and um, there's, uh, oh gosh, uh, is it called the Bison? Uh, I've forgotten the name, Salt Lake City. We're around, but we're not in distribution. Um, we, uh, we're pretty much more direct to consumers. So come to Napa Valley, make a visit here. Visit wine country, go check out Sonoma County beers and wines. Uh, you know, there's so much in the Bay Area to see. Um, and and then come visit Napa Valley because you're kind of, it's only about an hour and a half from San Francisco and it's just beautiful up here. You know, the, the mountains, uh, the landscape, the vines, um, you know, you just got to gotta get out of Dodge and come into the, come into wine country and... Um, and have a beer. And experience it, Yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, Niall, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for sharing all this stuff. I, I, I can't wait to get a hold of uh, some more of your beer and, and come to wine country and drink beer with you. Likewise. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person and, and talking more about what you're up to and, uh, and sharing, sharing some beers with you, getting some, getting some more beer in your hand. Absolutely. All right. Have a great day and thank you again. All right. Thank you. While the world demands hazies, IPAs, lagers, and even trendier beverages, there's a lesser known trend of better beer made in collaboration with the farmers who provide better ingredients. Keep an eye out for beers like this. They may be hard to find, but are worth the effort. Join us in the next episode where we head to the land of barbecue and live music to taste some farm-aged, Belgian-inspired beer. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you are a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.